Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. This episode, we're joined by Jay Hutchins of Brent and Becky's in Gloucester, Virginia. You may know them for their world-famous bulbs, uh, but they carry many other plants and are a family business of several generations. And welcome, Jay. Thanks, Kathy. Glad to be here. Ah, so good to be able to have you finally on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I've been wanting to have you on for a long time, but I was thinking perfect season would be almost the start of fall. And I'm sure you are super busy down there. Yeah, we are underway. We just got underway uh, Monday of this week as far as our shipping goes, as far as sending out the uh, fall planting, fall blooming items like colchicums, things like that. So we're shipping those to northernmost uh, states first and then heading down south. And then we'll uh, be getting in trucks here shortly that have the daffodils and tulips and all the other good things in there. So yeah, we're game is on right now. Hmm. So for the fall blooming bulbs, um, like colchicums, uh, what are your best sellers in the, in those categories? Uh, as far as the all bulbs or just the fall blooming ones? Just the fall ones, like the just most the popular from one. that category. Probably the colchicums because they are pest proof. Mm -hmm. um, we also have fall crocus and uh, some people may know the, the crocus can be, uh, can be susceptible to critters saying, hey, look, a buffet. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, colchicums are, are pretty popular uh, just for that reason. Yeah, anything that would be squirrel or critter or deer resistant would definitely be high up on that list. Mm -hmm. And I have a, a personal affection for bulbs myself just because in general, uh, and I'm going to just say in general, <laughs> not always <laughs> the case, but in general, they are set it and forget it plants that are, you know, the most low maintenance portions of your garden. Yeah, absolutely. Anything that... Brent always says you should play in your garden. And, uh, you know, I think if you can, like you said, plant it and then just forget it, uh, low maintenance. So you can actually enjoy and play and, and, and do some general weeding and watering and things like that. But just to spend the time enjoying the fruits of your labor as, as opposed to replacing and, uh, and things like that. So yeah, low maintenance, big fan. Mm-hmm. And not only that, a lot of bulbs multiply for you. So you're getting obviously more bang for your buck with, again, not much input from your end. That's correct. Yeah. If you can, if you can get that, um, that get your zone right, know your zone and plant the things that do well for your zone and, and will perennialize that they're going to come back year after year after year, then start looking for the word naturalize, which means adding more uh, over time. So, you know, uh, you may plant five daffodils this year, but in another year or two, you'll have 10. If they're happy and, you know, they're planted in the right area, they'll begin, you'll get more and more. 
That's a great point with the, the term naturalize, I think it is confusing for a lot of beginning gardeners. Yeah, it is. It, it is. Um, perennial, uh, perennial lives means year after year, uh, comes back as opposed to being an annual, but then natural lives means to have more and more. Uh, and whether that means you have more and more that are crowded into the same clump but naturalizing can also mean that more and more happen and they start going and, you know, you got to tame them and bring them back. So uh, naturalizing can mean to, you know, we, I've got uh, Lycoris radiata in my backyard that I never put there. Um, and there's more and more and more of them. They're beautiful. I don't mind having them, but um that radiata, uh, Lycoris radiata, just naturalizes like crazy. It's really cool. Hmm. I think another term for it that might be more clear for people would be something like colonize. <laughs> or, oh, yeah. Or self-seed. But yeah, naturalize is the horticultural term that we use. That's but it. That's it. And you mentioned Brent. And we have to talk about who Brent is and who <laughs> Brent and Becky is and your relation in there. Okay. Well, uh, let's say, let's see this. I call them my folks. Brent and Becky are my folks. Uh, if you want to get down dirty and technical, Brent is my stepfather. Becky's my mother. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I, I, <laughs> there are some people that go, wait, you're, you're like their kid. Oh, that's so awesome. That's great. We love them so much. And I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're just Brent and Becky. I've seen them in their nightgowns and their bathrobes on Christmas morning. <laughs> I mean, they're just, they put their pants on one leg at a time, just like everybody else. But uh, um, yeah, they're my folks. And uh, my wife and I are uh, set for the fourth generation of this company. Great. And the company started with Brent's grandfather. Correct. Yeah. It started in 1900 as... Uh, uh, up in Brookline, Massachusetts was Charles Heath. That was his name. And one morning for breakfast, he had cantaloupe and he loved it so much that he went to the local grocer and asked where it came from. And he said, well, that comes from a farm in Gloucester, Virginia. And so Charles placed an order for these cantaloupes. Um, every week he wanted a case while they were in season. And, of course, that's a pretty high order. And uh, the farmer recognized that, you know, her or had heard about this and decided to uh, reach out to Charles to say thank you. And uh, they began to correspond and they became friends. And then uh, Charles was invited to come down to Gloucester, Virginia, to see this farm, to see the land. And uh, so Charles made that trip all the way from Massachusetts in 1900 from Massachusetts down here um, to visit this farm, which was on the shores of the North River, which separates Gloucester County and Matthews County. Well, while he was here, daffodils were, <clears throat> excuse me, daffodils were a thing that came uh, over with the colonists and people were growing them here at the time. But they, like we were saying earlier, they, they perennialized and began to naturalize on roadsides and along the edges of fields and things like that. And Charles just had this instant attraction 
to these daffodils, loved them. So while spending time with the uh, farmer, um, he was told, well, you know, there's a property right across the river in Matthews County that is for sale. Um, and it's got all kinds of land. And Charles looked into it, um, sold everything he had in New England and, and bought a 300 acre waterfront farm in Matthews, Virginia, right across the river from where we still are right now and, uh, started growing daffodils for the cut flower industry. Um, they would pick them and then uh, ship them up the bay to Baltimore or out and around by the Atlantic into the New York area for the cut flower industry. And because of doing that, Charles gave yet another income source because um, even up until recently, uh, Gloucester, uh, Virginia has been a very seasonal employment sort of place, but especially back in 1900s when you were farming corn or soybeans or uh, you were uh, into the fishing industry, crabs, oysters, clams, fish. Um, there are seasons for that. Well, he added yet another seasonal income source into the area that ended up helping people to afford to have electricity run uh, to their homes uh, and telephones to their homes. So it was it was a pretty big deal for, for back then in the early 1900s. Wow. And do you know what variety of daffodil he was growing for the um, cut flower trade? I imagine it was en masse, just of one or two varieties. You know, I don't know exactly which varieties he grew. Um, daffodils were so much different back then because um, we would call them now heirlooms. They're, they're an older historic variety that aren't as gosh, I don't want to say this, that they're ugly, but they're not as aesthetically perfect as the daffodils. A lot of them that you see today in commerce where they're, the petals are, are very flat, they're very symmetrical. Um, some of these earlier varieties had slightly twisted petals or thinner as far as not as wide petals, but um, uh, they, they did grow many different varieties um, because the time came in the, let me see, in the 20s, I believe it was, there was a nematode infestation of all Dutch daffodils. So the U.S., the U.S. put like a, a block and said no Dutch daffodils can come into the United States. And of course, that's a big market loss for them at that time. And uh so the Dutch began to panic and uh, ended up coming here um, to Gloucester and Matthews, Virginia, to start doing what they did there here. So they worked with Charles and then second generation, his son, George, the Dutch worked, worked with them to help supply daffodils to uh, people here in the United States that normally wouldn't have gotten them. So Charles and George worked directly with Dutch growers and actually got even better and were growing even more varieties. And what the Dutch realized was that the soil here, it was so much more fertile. Um, we have a sandy, loamy soil here on the shores of the North River. And over in Holland, they have sandy soil as well, but it doesn't have a lot of nutrient base. So they have to add compost and things to amend the soil. 
So over here, that was already there. And they realized how much better they grew here. Uh, eventually, the, um, the, the embargo uh, was lifted uh, once the nematode was handled. And of course, Dutch operation, uh, operations went back over to Holland. Um, but they had learned so much and began to grow more and more different varieties. And I think at one point, gosh, I hate to, I hate to say pick numbers out of the air, but 20, let me see, 250 different varieties. Wow. Yeah. So there, so we weren't, they weren't just doing like uh, your standard yellow. They were doing a whole, whole bunch of different things by the time that, George took over as second generation. He and his wife, Katie, just grew hundreds and hundreds of different varieties on, you know, not that much land. They, um, you know, they, they were known for their variety as much as they were known for their quality. And at that point, the business was just selling bulbs by mail order. No, actually, at that time, they were still very much into the cut flower uh, side of things. Um, there's a, a picture of uh, George as an older gentleman um, showing someone a box of cut flower daffodils that they had put together and were shipping out. And uh, uh, it, it wasn't until later, um, as we start getting closer to Generation 3, when Brent came into the picture, where it became about uh, not just growing and cutting some, but uh, shipping uh, the bulbs off as well. And then it, that, that side really took off uh, once Brent took over and then met my mother, and they married in 1979. So what happened was Brent was the, Brent was the bulb guy. He was the farmer guy. He was the guy... Um, that, that at the time was doing all the tractor work and, and, uh, all that stuff. But, uh, he married my mom who then, uh, created what we really needed to make this business more of a success. And that was office operations. So she created and helped develop and build, uh, our customer service and answering the phones and taking orders. So, so somebody was there to pick up the phone, whereas before Brent was on the tractor. So, um, and then she helped uh, with his help put together our first catalog. And, uh, and not to say that Becky wasn't uh, an outside person. I mean, uh, when I was a kid and we were digging bulbs in our home property uh, she was on the tractor. Brent was on the tractor. I was on the track. We all took our turns uh, driving equipment uh, through all the work that we did. But it was her addition uh, of starting that office uh, that really kind of took it off. And then the creation of our catalog. And then eventually um, it was her idea that we should probably have this thing a new thing called a website. And uh, Brent said, what are you kidding? Gardeners don't use websites. They're outside in the garden. What are you crazy? And uh, you know, it, it was good enough for Al Gore. We were going to make one too. So uh, it was her push that ended up having our website get started. And so the two of them have done so much to um, bring this business uh 
kind of in, into modern times and not just being a small local uh, farm. And actually, the two of them together made the necessary changes to to make it a true, honest to God, profitable business. And I know that it's so much work being your business and your life 24 um, seven. What do they do? And what do you do on your downtime? Are you, are you still out there in the garden? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, what's the story about the cobbler's kids that does, they don't have good shoes or something. Um, mm-hmm. We on our downtime and, and I, and, and I'm speaking personally, um, Brent's always in the garden all the time. Um, he's up early in the morning and that is his downtime. That's, that's what he does. That's his love. That is, um, if he's not doing that, he's usually on the road except for this year, uh, with the pandemic, but, um, giving talks and, and getting to know the customers, that's his love. Uh, Becky, um, her love is running this business. And, um, you know, she loves to sing and she does that at the church. Um, and, 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 and she's been getting out more and doing more of, uh, singing with her church, which she's great at. She's got a beautiful voice, but she, she thrives on this business. They do take some time and, uh, go to Florida in the winter time and walk the beaches and pick up shells and things like that. But, um, you know, that's what they do um, all the time. Uh, my wife, Denise, and I, as far as downtime, um, as busy as, as we both are, uh, downtime means uh, finally sleeping in a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then, I can relate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Sleeping in a little, um, you know, we have a, a 12-year-old son, um, and there's always something to do with him. Uh, we've got the our honeydew list to do and the, the yard to take care of. Uh, and, uh, but we try to get in the garden when we can. Um, you know, the weeds are there. We, we, we can never quite keep up because, you know, Sunday is like usually our only day and to do everything else and then keep up with a week's worth of weeds. It's difficult. So we just call them wildflowers and just go with it. So, uh, we, you know, and then we do live on the water. We do live mm-hmm. here on the water. And so we've got, we've got, uh, boats and we, you know, we'd like to go out and, and just kind of float, uh, take, you know, take some, uh, crackers and cheese and a bottle of wine and just, uh, and enjoy that salt air. And then we have friends that we visit with often, um, usually in season on, on a Sunday afternoon, we're at another friend's house who pulls 22 to 23 or so crab pots and brings in, you know, two and a half, three bushels of blue crabs. And we all meet at his house and we sit on picnic tables by the water and we eat blue crab and have beer and talk and visit. And uh, so that's, that's usually our downtime. Hmm. Sounds wonderful. And so for those listeners who aren't familiar with the Tidewater, Virginia area, um, can you describe that geographically for them? Sure. Um, Tidewater consists of a large section of southeastern, middle to southeastern Virginia, um, which which would include uh, Virginia Beach, Norfolk, Portsmouth, uh, Newport News, Hampton, some of the big cities. We're on the northern edge of this area called Tidewater 
also known as Hampton Roads. Um, we're on the northern side of all of that off of the Mobjack Bay. And the Mobjack Bay uh, consists of one, two, three, four rivers and five land outlets. So you can almost, with your hand, you can almost make the shape of the Mobjack Bay in the air because you have these five fingers of land with four rivers. Uh, and it consists of the Severn River, the Ware River, the North River, and that's what we're off of. And then in Matthews, the East River. So we are, we are saltwater tidal, um, brackish, uh, great for crabbing, great for boating and fishing. And uh, we're, you know, we're a 25, 30 minute boat ride and we're in the Chesapeake Bay. Hmm. That's convenient. And um, for the soil mix you had talked about earlier, obviously um, very sandy mix, but I imagine that it's also prone to flooding frequently. There are, there are areas, you know, it's funny. I mentioned that we do have sandy loamy soil, which we do on the home property, which is where we had been doing the business for a long time. And then we moved the business a mile and a half up the road. And here we have concrete, porcelain, white, dead. It's the worst soil. Um, it, it was so, um, hmm. it, it was so abused uh, as a cornfield and a soybean field for so long um, that by the time uh, mom and Brent got this property and said, hey, let's start planting things, you, could, you couldn't get into it. And even if you could, even if you could get a bulb down in there, either A, it wasn't going to come up, or B, no moisture was going to get down to it because it wasn't the type of soil to absorb moisture. It was all runoff. So we've had to change our planting style. But before I get into that, and I will address flooding here, uh, it can happen. But there are sections of the county that are very low, um, you know, just, you know, three or four feet above sea level. And then there are areas where you're 15 to 20 feet or even more above sea level. And we're, we're in that lucky area that we have the sandy loamy soil but we're 12 to 15 feet above sea level. So even in a, a pretty decent hurricane with storm surge, um, it doesn't even come close to our house where other houses are inundated and they're gone. Hmm. Good, to, good to hear. And I've had the privilege of visiting both the home garden where Brent has his trial gardens of different bulbs, as well as your demonstration garden that's around the store that people can visit. Mm -hmm. um, during this COVID period, is the retail store open for the public? We did close for a while um, when the, when the, uh, all the restrictions first happened and every, basically everything was just done, shut down. Um, we do have uh, a nice big, uh, large acreage of display gardens. Well, because nobody could go anywhere, all of a sudden we became a spot where people wanted to come and just walk just to get outside and see some things. Well, at the same time, there were people that were coming in. You know, we had all the major restrictions, but they had some, you know, we could stay open as a business if we. Uh, fo followed certain guidelines. Well, we saw people coming in 
without masks and without, uh, you know, leaning on the counter while you're trying to check them out and they're three feet away from you talking, sniffing, you know. And so uh, we decided to shut down for a while to limit the risk because we do have a little, we do have our garden shop, which is called the bulb shop. But that is not our our bread and butter. That is just, it's a a pretty place to come visit with great gardens. And um, you can, large selection of bulbs in there, home accessories, jewelry, art, all kinds of things. But that's not the bread and butter. Our e-commerce and mail order, that's it. And if if someone had gotten sick, then that would have that would have hurt that side of our business. So we did shut down for a while until we could get things in place. But our bulb shop is open Monday through Saturdays from 9 a.m. until 4 p.m. And speaking of your e-commerce uh, orders during the COVID period, um, I know if several seed companies and other mail order were slammed with orders and had to shut down just to catch up. Um, but yours might be a different pattern since most of your ordering, I think happens in the late spring onwards for fall bulb, fall planted bulbs, at least. No, not at all. Yeah. No, it, <laughs> we, you know, I looked on our website analytics, um, gosh, what was it a month, month and a half, two months ago. And you can see when the restrictions went into place nationwide, because we started this year ahead of last year. And then all of a sudden that like third week of March or so, our web traffic went through the roof. We had double the web traffic. We scrambled. We were getting in touch with our brokers to top up because all of a sudden we were selling out of everything right and left. So we were trying to get more to help supply that demand. And there were also, um, there was a company in the uh, Pacific Northwest that typically does uh, daffodils and tulips, but because of their, um, they lost some staff just by volunteering not to come in. Um, They lost that help. They decided not to do daffodils and tulips and sent there are many, many, many viewers on social media to us. And so all of a sudden we got inundated again. And um, this, you know, we're going to have a very, very busy fall. Um, We're hiring up, bringing in more people because we're going to need it. This it's, we had the same thing that you saw with seed companies that hit us too. Mm -hmm. And fall's not even here yet. Yeah, it's not even fall yet. Um, So I do hope all of those people who are first-time orderers, first-time bulb planters um, have a good start and get a good um, result in their plants. So I wanted to ask you for some tips for those first-timers. Okay. As far as how to order? Um, Yeah, how to order maybe what a beginner might order and then when they receive the order, what they should do. Okay. Well, when you're trying to figure out what you want to do, um, the first thing there's, there's a few things you want to start with and, and that is knowing uh, your planting zone. Um, and, and you can look that up. The uh, USDA has that. We have that search on our website. You can just put in your zip code and find out what your plant zone is. That way, I mean, you can by all means 
get something that will not perennialize and just be an annual for you. But if you want to try to do it and have it come back and perennialize, come into it knowing your uh, planting zone, your winter hardiness zone. Second thing is you need to come in knowing where your garden is, what is there in regards to sun and in regards to soil. More importantly, well, they're both important, but, uh, you know, even if you're doing a raised bed uh, and not utilizing the soil that's there, you need to you need to know what sunlight you've got there. Um, and on our website, you can click on the fall planted se- uh, section of our website and then click on a search. And then as far as bulbs, you can pick your sun and you can pick your winter hardiness zone and hit go. And that'll give you everything that uh, would grow and do well for you. Um, you know, I would try to find things that um, uh, that aren't edible. You know, we, we had mentioned that earlier that uh, uh, colchicums, as far as fall planted and fall blooming, are pest proof. But uh, things like daffodils, they are also pest proof. Um, and then there's things like lecogems that are pest proof. L-E-U-cogem, C-O-J-U-M. Um, those are pest proof. Um, and those are little white bells. And they I call them the baby's breath of the bulb world because they look, okay, you've just planted 25 daffodils or 25 tulips or something. Mm-hmm. Well, that's neat. But then if you plant the lacogems with that, they bloom around the same time. And so you have these little white bells that are also in that same bed. So um, think about what can be put together as far as, hey, you, on, our, on our website, you can search color. So if your favorite color is red, you can look for red. If you want to look for uh, yellow, do a search for yellow. And then you can also search on our site by uh, bloom time. And so you might find something that, that you want to put in that uh, flower bed that blooms in the early spring. And you get that one. And then change the search to mid-spring and then find some stuff. And then change it to late spring and find some stuff. And then very late spring and plant them all together. And then what you get is this succession of bloom and... Uh, uh, what blooms next hides out and uh, covers the, the stuff that was dying back from the earlier part of the season. So, I mean, I know I just covered a lot, but for a, for a new person, just knowing your winter hardiness zone, what the conditions are like in your garden, and then picking things that fit that um, demographic um, and then trying to find some stuff that's low maintenance or pest proof, that's the best way to get started. Hmm. And that's such a great point of the early, mid and late season daffodils and tulips as well have that timing. Um, and those are all marked in your catalog and online, um, as well as on the packages, of course. So, um, it's a good lesson not to buy everything for just that one mid-March timing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then have everything bloom at once and then die out and then be able to layer it and have a layering in 4D as in the time dimension and not just um, 3D. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, 
do you have any recommendations for um, combinations with perennials and bulbs that go well together? Uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah, we've got, and, and speaking of, uh, comp, you know, uh, early, mid and late, if you uh, look in our catalog in the very front or search our website for the word mix, um, there are mixes that you just plant the bulbs that come in that bag and it is a mix of early, mid and late, all color coordinated and everything. So we, we can actually take the, the thought process out of it for you if you want. Um, there are, uh, a, we have, sometimes I wonder if people get overwhelmed at the selection that we've got. And I hope nobody does because we do have so many cool things uh, to choose from. Uh, to go along with your bulb purchases and to go along uh, with um, all the other things that we have. But we do have a section called our Cozy Companions where we're selling um, hellebores and peonies and iris and, and sedums and things like that. But uh, we, one of the coolest things that we have that I think is a great accent or backdrop to your uh, bulb garden are the flowering quince. Uh, we've got three uh, different selections, three different shades of them from peachy to pink to more scarlet red flowers. But these shrubs, these flowering quince are a great backdrop. If you put that towards the back of the bed and then plant your daffodils or, or your tulips or uh, your hyacinths or lacogiums or whatever towards the front, uh, you can you can really make a nice pop. Like, for example, in our catalog is a picture of the double-take peach flowering quince, which has more of a peachy color, and it's got a daffodil planted in front of it that is white with a pink-rimmed cup. So those two pinks just accent so well together. Or you can take the, the dark scarlet one, the double-take scarlet, and plant... Um, a, a white uh, tulip or a white daffodil in front of that. And that contrast of color, that dark scarlet with that nice bright, you're going to be able to, that white is just going to pop. So uh, I think those are great uh, combinations with, um, with other bulb plants. I think that would be, at least even, even for a beginning gardener, I think that's probably not a bad thing to start with because they have a, they have a, a, a pretty decent spread as far as the planting zones from zones five to nine. So that covers a nice section of the country and uh, you can match up uh, a lot of daffodils or a lot of bulb plants within those planting zones as well. Hmm, nice. And I was thinking also about um, the classic combination of daffodils and daylilies together, mm. although Daffodils are deer resistant, daylilies not so much. But yeah. um, the good part about the that combination of layering those together is that the daylily foliage is filling in as the daffodil is dying back and kind of covers that up for people who find that a little unsightly. Yeah, that is a great tip, Kathy. It it it, it really does help that because the the daffodils or uh, even the tulips they've got nice size foliage, but the daylilies, when they come up, they kind of fill in and take up even more space as they're as they're beginning to grow, and they're hiding that um, kind of yellowing 
uh, foliage that's dying back with the earlier blooms. And, you know, when you mentioned earlier about low maintenance, guys, that's the way to do it. Um, if you can have another plant that follows behind it, that covers up that, that one that is now going dormant, you don't have to worry about cutting the old foliage out and getting rid of it. It just goes away on its own and it's hidden by the next plant. So that's a great idea. Hmm. And every once in a while, I still see somebody braiding their daffodil or tulip <laughs> foliage or um, pressing it down to the ground, maybe with rocks or something. Um, so I assume you're recommending not to do that. <laughs> Yeah, through yeah through my uh, through my laughter, I we do not recommend that. It is uh, here's the thing: your your blooms have expired. Um, let's say your your daffodil is done, the bloom is expired. You've picked off that bloom because it's brown, but now you're left with these green leaves sitting there. Um, what that what's happening at that point is that that bulb is still alive. It's photosynthesizing at that moment, even though the bloom is gone, it's been photosynthesizing the whole time. So by braiding or covering like uh, with a rock or something or pressing them down and holding them uh, down, what you're doing is you're limiting the surface space to be able to photosynthesize and for that bulb to be able to feed itself. And here we go, here's the theme of, the, of this whole talk today is low maintenance let you know you're going to feed again in the fall anyway so why not let that bulb even help itself a little bit by getting as much food on its own as possible in the spring and wait to either cut that foliage back or hide it or whatever once it begins to yellow if you do it any earlier uh, slowly over time that bulb will begin to not get enough food so therefore it will either a bring up foliage with no bloom because it only has the energy, it doesn't have the energy to bloom and it puts up foliage to try to get some energy. So hopefully next time it can bloom or B, it's just not going to come at all. Yeah. And I was going to say that there's also those that cut it off right away, which would be the, the same effect on them, them. But there are some daffodils or at least tulips that I've seen with variegated foliage or like red streaking or white streaking so that even that can be an attraction in your garden. Absolutely. And, you know, cutting early, we did a, a mass planting here in our town, I say mass, it was probably 8,000 daffodils that we planted here. Um, of course, we do that mechanically, so that just took us very little time whatsoever. But the uh, in, in the spring when they bloomed, the lawn crews, because this was done in a park uh, lawn area, grass area, turf, uh, the people that then cut that grass cut the foliage early. I mean, yeah, took mm. it out. Once the blooms were done, they just mowed the foliage down and they had at least a 50% loss of return blooms the, the following spring. So correct. Do not cut early or that's, that's going to be devastating. There are some tulips, as you mentioned, that have that variegated foliage. Um, like, um, let's see, uh, one called Vincent Van Gogh is one and it's got a uh, it's a pink and green bloom uh, but the foliage is green but has a white edge 
So it's beautiful. Um, and like Kathy said, there are some that have uh, a nice red edge through them. So even once the bloom is done, visually, you still have something that's pretty to look at. And I think that's why sometimes hostas are pretty popular because, you know, the, the, the foliage is always nice to look at, even if there's no flower. And the town planting you mentioned, is that part of the annual Gloucester Daffodil Festival? Well, that planting was, um, that happened at a time when we were uh, beginning to plant in mass mechanically. And uh, we made a special deal for the county. And, um, you know, it gave us some time to learn this equipment and do a planting and see the results before we kind of went out to the public. And, um, but we've done many more plantings for our county. Um, and those were those indeed, the, the, the ones we did after, were for our Daffodil Festival. We did, gosh, I think we've probably put in 20 or 30,000 bulbs way in the back of a park where people don't tend to go. And those are intended for the county to use to decorate the town as far as like floats and things like that. Um, so the... Uh, that's where that all started. Um, but our Daffodil Festival has been going strong for ages. And if you haven't been, you gotta come. We're all, actually, I mentioned to uh, one of our staff members today that I was really missing the Daffodil Festival because we didn't get it this year. So I'm kind of anxious for 2021 and I hope we get it. Mm. Yeah, that was going to be my question was, were you able to sneak that in before the pandemic shut down? But obviously not good timing there. No, not good timing at all. It um, uh, it was in early April and the shutdowns were somewhere around the third week of March. And it, there was just no way. I mean, we get, oh my, we what, 20 some thousand people that come to little old Gloucester County for this festival uh, during the weekend. So, you know, it just wasn't safe and they made the right call by canceling it. So, uh, I hope, I hope 2021 brings, Hey, 2021 has got to be better. Cause I'm not sure it can get much worse. <laughs> we got nowhere to go, but up now. Yeah. Well, knock on wood and yes, <laughs> um, hopefully the festival will be back and bigger than ever for 2021. And, uh, you mentioned Brent's uh, ties to Dutch growers. I know that he usually makes an annual trip um, to view some of the new introductions and he's even made some introductions himself. Can you describe some of those? Yeah, sure. Um, we do go, uh, well, we normally go every spring. We didn't go this spring. Um, nobody did anything this year, but we do go uh, and He's, in his words, you know, I, I enjoy my time there, but I, I think it's the plane ride and it's a busy schedule. And uh, he's just saying, you know what, why don't you and Denise go? So Denise and I have been going. Um, we were supposed to go. This would have been our second year going together. But we go there and we uh, visit with our two brokers. And then we go around and visit the growers who are uh, either A, uh, growing varieties for us or even our specific varieties. They're growing and uh, hybridizing and creating new things that uh, we would like to see in person um, or, uh, or be just continuing on with, 
you know, the, the standard Carltons and the Mount Hoods and Ice Follies and the, the others. So we get a chance to uh, take photography. We get a chance to, um, you know, shake the hands and, and have that relationship with these people. So they, they remember that we're out here and, and we still uh, need them and we still love them. And, uh, you know, it's, it's fun. And then we sit and have coffee and, and, and talk, and then it's off with the next grower. And we walk a lot acres and acres and acres of, uh, of fields uh, in, in Holland while we're there. And, um, and that helps us to decide what we're going to bring in new for the following year. As far as uh, Brent and Becky goes, uh, as far as what they have done, as far as their uh, hybrids themselves, we do offer uh, a mix called Brent and Becky's Favorites. And uh, it is a mix of things that, uh, that they have uh, uh, hybridized. Uh, we, I mean, some of them, like, uh, one of them is Katie Heath, which, which unfortunately isn't in our commerce right now because it's having a problem, uh, with its health, but they, I think they've hybridized 30 some different varieties of daffodils. Um, typically not always, but typically what they, what they do is they, they take the native, um, natural species, jonquilla and uh, that God created, and they use that and hybridize it with another daffodil that has qualities that they find um, uh, nice and alluring. It's it's a lot. It's a lot like uh, dating and marriage and childbirth. I mean, you you you've got the male on one side and the female on the other. And if you've ever looked at a couple and said, "Wow, they would make beautiful children," that's the same process. They they take the jonquilla uh, as the male and they fertilize the other daffodil as the female and, and create seed that they then plant. And uh, they take those little seeds uh, closer to the early part of summer. And uh, in the fall, they plant them and uh, put them in little pots. And then in the spring, there's like a blade of grass. And then the next spring, there's like two blades of grass and the next spring, there's three blades of grass, and they're it's getting a little thicker. And finally, five to seven years later, they get to see that first bloom happen. And uh, and then all the brothers or the sister seedlings that are sitting there, they all bloom. And then that's something else what we do when we're in Holland is we look at the new hybrids and all of the siblings together and you can't do this with people, but you pick out the favorite child and, <laughs> and you yeah. dispose of the rest. Right. So, uh, it is, um, it's a fascinating process to, and then it's, it's fun to go there and see, um, something that is unique, something that's different, or is, it can be extremely difficult to say, gosh, these are all so beautiful, but we should really, kind of pick one or two and that's it. How do we get rid of the rest? So um, it, it's a fun process. And, and uh, Brent and Becky have been doing that for decades and decades. Uh, ever since I was, I was, uh, you know, 11 or 12 years old and I'm 52. So we're talking, you know, 40 some years ago. <laughs> and, and they still love it. 
And they still love it. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, they do. And uh, I was perusing your catalog. I noticed you have several daffodils that are available Mm -hmm. pre-chilled. So for those listeners in the mid-Atlantic, we probably don't need pre-chilled, but those would be for those who don't have a cold enough winter correct that's correct yeah for the customers that are in you know florida or you know uh, central or southern texas the parts of louisiana uh, there are some varieties that um that do well towards the south they tend you know most daffodils have either a winter hardiness zone of zones three to eight and some of them have four to nine. So, I mean, you some of them can actually take on that summer, that uh, hot spring heat and some humidity more than others. Um, in particular, John, jonquils or jonquillas, Division 7 daffodils. Um, but for those who can't do them at all, we do have a small selection of pre-cooled uh, bulbs that um, we chill for you starting through the fall and the winter. And we ship them out uh, after after the new year and send them down to uh, southernmost customers so they can plant them and, and get them going for for their quote-unquote spring bloom. Mm-hmm. And I do uh, have a lot of fun experimenting with forcing bulbs um, and creating a little mini winter in my refrigerator crisper drawer and getting them to bloom, say, in February inside. So those listeners who want to try that, um, you could always buy also pre-chilled and try that out as well. Yeah. I mean, you can, um, keeping them in that crisper drawer. I mean, it works really well, but if you don't want to take up the space, we've got them pre-chilled for you and we can send them to you. Um, even if you are here in this area and if you want to, I mean, um, they're, they're going to cost a little bit more cause we're taking some more time with them and, uh, the electricity and the, and the, uh, cooling, uh, racks that we have in our warehouse, but uh, you can get them at home, pot them up, put them in a sunny window, and and have spring inside long before spring even gets here. Mm-hmm. And sometimes February can be so long for such a short <laughs> month. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, that you really want some of those spring bulbs inside with you. Um, what about those who can only garden in containers? Um, do you have any pre-done containers or specific varieties that you recommend for container growing? Um, if you're if you're looking at containers, we would recommend um, uh, looking at some smaller sizes, uh, keep the height down, find more compact plants. Uh, if they get too long and too leggy, um, then they can tend to blow over or uh, bend. So uh, that's probably the first tip. We do have a, uh, a pre, not a pre-done container, um, but we give you all of the ingredients. Uh, we have an indoor holiday cheer, which we send to you in the in the fall and you get it ready in time for the holidays. Um, that, but that is the only, uh, container that we offer, um, through, uh, through our website and through our catalog. But, um, look at things like oxalis. If you're going to do your own pots, um, look at things like, um, a, a more compact tulip or a more compact, uh, daffodil or, or look at things uh, like Kianodoxas or, or some of those other low-growing uh, sort of plants or, or muscaries, grape hyacinths. They're also 
they're great in containers, especially alongside of um, tulips and daffodils. They look great together. So low, compact, and uh, and uh, th- those will probably work the best for you. Mm-hmm. And for those listeners in the Mid-Atlantic, we have usually a, a fairly wet winter. Um, could be a very cold or could be not. Uh, this year, the Farmer's Almanac is saying we're going to get two feet of snow in the second week of february we shall see what Um, but um as far as the moisture that's usually uh what does in a lot of container bulb plantings is sitting out in the wet winter um so my own tip is to throw a landscape cloth across the top and move your containers against a building so at least there's some protection from the eaves um, and not so much moisture but getting obviously a little bit so the bulbs um, don't just die but don't rot either right and drainage is key i mean even in a pot but for your garden consider that um, you need to have good draining soil or a wet even a um, it's deadly for a bulb to have poor drainage uh, during their summer dormancy because they're not utilizing any of that moisture and they're sitting in it. Um, they will rot and you'll have nothing the next spring. You'll, I mean, you'll dig down and there won't even be mush. It'll just be gone. So good drainage yeah. is important. That's an excellent point for, for those who plant, say, tulips in a irrigated flower bed, um, that that summer irrigation is not going to be the friend of those tulips so no not at all don't expect them to return the next year right if you're if you're going to irrigate irrigate and you're doing it for your lawn make sure it stays there and any excess makes you know try not to have excess only water enough to make it helpful but not to the point that things begin to run off um, because, and, and doubly make sure that it's not running towards your flower beds because your, your bulb plants in particular, and, uh, some other plants that, uh, that are small, you know, shrubs and things can, can handle a little bit of excess moisture because they're utilizing a lot more, but, uh, these smaller plants like bulbs and things like that just can't handle that wet, uh, wet feet in that summer dormancy. Mm-hmm. So we talked a bit about fall planted bulbs for next spring and bulbs that we plant now for fall blooming, uh, but we skipped all over the summer season. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. And what I find one of the most exciting new bulb categories, or not new, but up and coming in popularity are the alliums. Uh, yes. Now we do have a selection of alliums for, they're, they're actually fall planted but they bloom either, I don't know, you call it very late spring or very early summer, one of the two. But alliums are a great transition bulb to take you from spring into summertime. We do offer an allium in our uh, spring planted summer blooming catalog, um, but most of our alliums are in the fall planted sections of our catalog that we're getting in right now and we'll be shipping out here shortly. They just, uh, they don't bloom until it gets nice and hot. 
and they dry, I think they dry so well that they, oh. that's one bulb you don't mind just like literally sitting and, and letting uh, dry and stay as a standard in your garden. Absolutely. We even will cut them as they're, um, as they're, as they're beginning to dry within the garden. We do that to, to clean up the garden appearance, but then we take them inside and we hang them uh, in, you know, in the drier air of, of air conditioning and that helps dry them out and they hold that shape. They hold their stem stays sturdy. Um, all the little puff balls on top, they stay, they're just brown, but they are a beautiful dried flower. And we've, we've seen many people do it. We do it. We paint them. Um, we, we paint ours sometimes red, white, gold, silver, Christmas colors. And um, you, we just spear them right into the Christmas tree as a decoration. And, and they're absolutely beautiful. Yeah, some are very sculptural. Some kind of have that Sputnik open look to them, <laughs> almost lacy. <laughs> so they are, they are fun to paint, so like in metallics or even bright chartreuse colors um, and fluorescent colors even for kids. Absolutely. Yeah, we did... Um... We did a in our uh, the bulb shop, our our retail store. We we put a Christmas tree up, and um, we did a Valentine tree. So we we did hearts and things like that. And but we took the dried alliums that were red and white, and then we painted some pink. And then so we we had a Valentine tree. So you could do red, white, and blue for Fourth of July. And see, I'm thinking with alliums, grow a bunch of them, dry a bunch of them, paint them a whole bunch of different colors, then keep your tree up all year long and then just decorate it for the season. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think um, especially in this year of COVID, a lot of people are actually decorating earlier for the holidays. So that's one way you could do it is just keep that tree up and switch out your floral displays as well. Yeah, absolutely. We had a friend that kept his, he had a Christmas room and uh, when Christmas was over, he just shut the doors. And then next Christmas, he just opened the doors. But with this way, you get a different look. I mean, for Halloween, you can you can have them orange and black. And I mean, uh, think of all the different holiday seasons that you could uh, paint a different you know, New Year's Eve. You could do gold and white. I mean, just leave the tree up and just cover it with alliums. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. So for other um, summer I don't want to call them bloomers, but some are bulbs like alocasia, caladiums, colocasia. Those won't be available um, until wintertime for ordering. And then they would be delivered in the spring uh, to plant out for summer, correct? That's, that's correct. Yeah. The the website for anything spring planted, summer blooming, that typically goes up live uh, just after the new year when we get back from the holidays somewhere around there. Uh, and then we begin taking orders and ship in the spring between uh, around mid-March to late May or early June. But um, I, we have so much in our fall catalog for spring bloom. I really like our spring-planted summer blooming selection because you get you get a variety of height, color, shape texture, sound. I mean, there's some things that we sell that when it, when they, uh, when the wind blows, like, uh, like the muley grasses, when those things blow in the breezes, I mean, you can hear it rustling up against each other and, and you can see the big puffs on top waving like clouds in the breeze. So 
we get so much more artistically, I think, within our summer flowering bulbs catalog than, than almost as, I, I think, more than our fall planted spring blooming catalog. Hmm, wonderful. And for those looking for your online is Brent and Becky's, um, there's an S in there, bulbs, also plural.com, correct? That is correct. And it's and, A-N-D. We get asked all the time, is it an ampersand? What, what is it? And it's, <laughs> it's, it's like, no, it's actually spelled out A-N-D, Brent and Becky's bulbs.com. Wonderful. Um, any last minute thoughts for those who forgot or just starting to put together their orders for next spring? Wow. Uh, okay. Well, A, you have time. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in this, in our mid-Atlantic area, you know, we're typically you're going to plant right around your first frost date, which for, you know, depending on how f- far you are to the coast or how far inland you are, um, can vary, but, you know, we're talking, uh, mid to late October to mid to late November, somewhere in that time frame is planting. So you've got time. Um, secondly, uh, you probably have uh, good memories of your spring garden because this spring everybody was home staring at it. So think about where you may have an empty spot that needs to be filled or think about what's there and what you could put in to complement what you already have. Like I had mentioned earlier with the flowering quince, if you have a nice, if you have a nice thing of uh, daffodils growing in this flower bed and you have some space behind it, you know, something like that. Think about where you may want to uh, add an, an accent plant of some sort. But uh, you got tons of time, um, and probably the next um, in the next few weeks or so, if you want to start uh, uh, getting some compost ready. Um, we, we highly recommend utilizing compost because you can't go wrong. Uh, even a little bit is good, but you can use a whole lot and it's, you're not going to hurt anything. You're not going to burn it as if you would use a, a, a chemical type, uh, fertilizer. So start getting your, uh, compost, uh, together soon in the next, uh, you know, three weeks to a month or so and get yourself ready to go and, uh, just, top everything with some compost and, and a little bit of mulch of your choice uh, after planting, water a little bit, and and, uh, and just sit there and wait for spring to pop. Wonderful. Uh, so thank you so much, Jay. And uh, I can't wait for next spring to see all these things coming up, but I can't also wait for this fall to see my colchicums in, uh, coming up amongst my hostas. Very nice. Yeah. It's always fun. There's always some, uh, gardening isn't always uh, instant gratification. So that anticipation is kind of nice. I kind of like it. Hmm. Always a lesson in patience. That is. Yeah. <laughs> When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Tulip Mania. Visitors to my springtime garden often remark on the gorgeous and unusual tulips I grow. 
I cannot take credit for them as I did not breed them, but I do look out for the most stunning varieties and combinations when I'm out on garden tours. Here are the top five that I consider must-haves for my garden. The first is Angelique. This is a gorgeous peony-like bloom, mostly white but with a pink blush at the edges. Number two is Princess Irene. It has an unusual color combination of melon with a plum mark in the center. This striking tulip makes a great cut flower and a terrific combination with peach colored daffodils in the same bed. Black Parrot is my third choice. It's actually a dark maroon, but so rich in velvety, you'll swear it's black. This tulip also has wonderfully frilly edges and looks dramatic paired with most other bulbs. Number four is Blue Amiable. It's a soft silvery lilac on a single tall stem. Just one of these in a bud vase on my bedside table is all I need. And number five, Spring Green. This is the palest yellow tinged with green highlights. This makes the tulip a fresh addition to any yard and ideal to combine with brighter yellows and whites. Tulip growing tips that I can offer include waiting till after Halloween to plant. Planting bulbs too soon can often end up in rotting bulbs in your soil. They don't like sitting in any wet, wet spots. Give them a sunny spot in well-draining soil. Most public gardens and many veteran gardeners treat tulips as annuals and just pull and compost them after they bloom. They will return for a few years, but budget and plan to replace them every couple of years and experiment with new varieties while you're at it. And there is the pest problem. Deer and squirrels can dig up and eat your tulips. So apply an organic deterrent like blood meal, hot pepper spray, or deer repellent if that's an issue for you. For this week's What's Blooming in the Garden, I thought I'd share the Japanese anemone Robitissima that's springing into flower all over my garden. And that should be a little bit of a warning to everyone because it does spread easily by underground stolons. Um, so you'll want to keep it in check if you have this ranunculus buttercup family member in your garden. Um, it can be found blooming from mid to late August through at least September and sometimes popping up even into October. Not only are Japanese anemones good looking, they're also easy to care for. Give them a spot in part sun with a bit of moisture. They'll reward you with masses of flowers for years to come. These fall bloomers can even take full sun as long as you keep them well watered. Now, like just about every other plant on the planet, your fall blooming anemones would prefer well-drained soil, but they'll gamely put up with your heavy clay-based soil as well and look good doing so. And by the way, the common name Japanese anemone is a bit of a misnomer because they're actually from China, but the anemone part of the name is derived from a Greek word for wind, animos, and that appellation is perfectly understandable once you see an anemone flower swaying gracefully in the wind on its tall bloom stalk. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. 
You can become a listener supporter by going to anchor.fm backslash Kathy dash gents backslash support. For as little as 99 cents a month, you can become a listener supporter and we'll give you a shout out in a future episode. Another way to support Garden DC is to go to WashingtonGardener.com and subscribe to Washington Gardener magazine. Plant Profile, Tiger Eyes, Cutleaf Staghorn Sumac. Tiger Eyes, Cutleaf Staghorn Sumac is a beautiful shrub with a tree-like form. This selection was discovered in a nursery back in 1985 as a whole plant mutation of Rustafina laciniata and is considered an improvement on the native staghorn sumac straight species because of its dwarf form and that it spreads less aggressively. The foliage on the plant is a traffic stopper, literally. I have it planted in the sidewalk median, and I am regularly asked by passing motorists and pedestrians to identify and write down the name of this stunning plant for them. The new growth each spring is a bright chartreuse green that changes quickly to a golden yellow. The leaf stems are a rosy pink, and the leaves themselves are deeply cut, giving them a fern-like and lacy appearance. Then each autumn comes the real show. The leaves take on the colors of a brilliant sunset. From peachy oranges to scarlet reds, the fall foliage is unparalleled. The cone-like flowers are followed by deep red fruit that are attractive to wildlife. This is a great plant for use as an accent or in mass plantings. It needs full sun, but tolerates a wide range of soils as well as urban conditions. It is also drought tolerant once established. It is hardy from zones four through eight. There is no need for fertilizer or pruning. It will send out some suckers from the base. Simply dig them up and transplant them where you like. Tiger Eyes Sumac, you can grow that. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.